Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Steve Macias and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Thanks for joining us again for this edition of the Out of the Question podcast. I'm going to give you a date just so it's in context. It's October 23rd, 2020. We're just shy of two weeks away from the election that's coming up. And lots of things have people on either side angry or dismayed. And there are stories in the scripture where it looks like the people of God are badly outnumbered. And one of those stories has to do with David and Goliath, which most people are used to. But Goliath can be used figuratively as well as actually, as far as I know, there's not a big giant running around the United States or other parts of the world right now challenging people, but we can say figuratively, there are Goliaths in our day. So Steve, the question we want to get behind today is this, how do we face the Goliaths of our day and what are they? Who are they? Right. And I think behind this question is really a common Sunday school reading of the story of David and Goliath, where somehow magically David, this poor, weak, and uh, unskilled boy is able to overcome the great monster of a soldier, Goliath, based on really the miracle of God. And while there is a sense in which the story is miraculous, I think that the scripture is also giving us a picture of what true strength and what true power is. You know, not just in the story of David and Goliath, but everywhere the people of God go throughout the Old and New Testament, our Lord is overturning our expectations of what strength, what power, what really are advantages in this world. And so today we want to talk about really, when we talk about giants, we talk about those insurmountable uh, tasks or majorities or corporations or political parties. Uh, have we bought into this false narrative where we believe that the great powers of this world can actually overcome God's people. Do we really believe we're at a disadvantage because we're smaller or because uh, we're not in the office of pol political power that we want or because we have less money or resources? Not only do we see in the story of David and Goliath, God using uh, minority, meaning David had obviously less muscle mass, less stature, less weaponry, um, but yet those were not seen as disadvantages, but were probably advantages in David's battle over Goliath. And God uses our identity, our resources that we have today to overcome his giants. And often we overlook what advantages we already have. Okay, so you talked about this misconception of David, that he was just some sort of frail kid who came up there. But there was a backstory to David that isn't often relayed in that account between him and the giant. There's there's two parts of the backstory of David. One is that he is a person of promise. He is uh, the long expected king of Israel. He's from a holy lineage. He has the expectation that his people, his name, his time is going to come. And the giants that exist in his land are promised to be vanquished. 
And we also have in his story, you know, all the little things you hear in, in Sunday story lessons about him being a shepherd's boy or him working with this little sling that he uses to throw the smooth stones. There is a, a backstory behind him that the Lord used both who he was in his current resources, who he was as a young shepherd boy, what he was called to do, his normal everyday life, but also in his status as a child of God or as the promised deliverer of the people of Israel for that time. So being a shepherd boy watching the flock was not what you gave the person who has no competence or responsibility. Since you're talking about a livelihood, this was a young man who knew what his responsibilities were and was responsible not to mess up. Right. Well, for context, today in the United States, in the great state of Montana, uh, we have our modern shepherd boys. Uh, these are adult men uh, who are burly carrying their assault rifles, and they protect their livestock and homes from the ravening, overpopulated wolves of Montana. And they don't go in there with just sticks and swords. They have fully automatic, often, assault rifles because these uh, wolves that are can get their young children or even them uh, need to be fought off. And so there have been many historians have looked at what David actually does as far as slinging his stone uh, as very similar to like a, a 45 caliber uh, pistol that what he's able to do with that sling is based on his training in protecting his sheep, his livestock. And it was not like scaring away the wolf. It was conquering, destroying, killing <laughs> any type of threat that was to his people. And so when we get to the battle, often we, we say, David has these meager stature. He has this meager tools. He has this meager weapon, but that's not the reality at all. He is this agile, ferocious, fearless, uh, and capable, almost militant soldier who's able to guerrilla warfare against the giant who is slow, cumbersome, holding all of his armor and his heavy weapons and all of his chain mail. And in the very real sense, David has every advantage in this battle. But because our perspective is wrong, we think, wow, what a powerful thing David overcomes the great giant Goliath, when just the opposite, we should expect that the guerrilla fighter is going to overcome this oaf of a giant. And so, again, if you don't have an eschatology of victory, if you're not certain when you go out in God's name, when you go out to fulfill the Great Commission, that you will be victorious. It's very easy to be like David's brothers and the other soldiers, including Saul, who were cowed. And it, I love the story because David comes up and it's like he's embarrassed by all these people. What are you people doing? Can't you see that um, just being afraid of him is sinful? Which now gets us back to our analogy. There is today a perception that social media, legacy media, the deep state, this party, that party, terrorist enemies, that these are all giants. And it's not uncommon 
to hear Christians bemoan how bad it all is without any real sense or understanding that Psalm 2 has not been canceled. Right. Well, more so than just the story of, of David and Goliath, I think if we go to the very first chapter of the book of Judges, which is likely the most post-millennial <laughs> parallel uh, in the entire Bible, the book of Judges starts off with the promise given to the people under Joshua that the land that was promised unto Moses would be given to them and to their descendants. And the young men who are scouting out the land go into the land and they see, much like David would see toe-to-toe giants in the land. And there's this competing promise of God says, this is the Lord's territory. And man says, but, you know, there's already people controlling it that are more powerful seemingly than us. The great challenge, though, is whose word, whose wisdom, whose power, whose authority are you going to rely on? Are you going to trust in your natural faculties of weighing what you think is possible versus what God thinks is possible? Or are you going to weigh the promises of God through his extended and promised means? I think that we have, and we often don't recognize it, a great advantage over the heathen, even if at this particular time and place, they seem to have an upper hand. Uh, We see the chickens coming home to roost, as they say, with all of the scandal that comes with each generation of the great Goliaths of our time. Today, we're going through a news cycle that's talking about the great behemoth in technology of our day. Uh, Who else is more wealthy, uh, more powerful than Google? Right, Google, who has commodified our entire existence through search engines, controlling and tracking our data, and selling that to advertisers. And yet, if you pick up any newspaper in the United States, in any newsstand, any news website that's worth anything, this week ran an article talking about how Google is in trouble for voter suppression or voter manipulation trying to manipulate what data gets to the voter through the election cycle. Now, they have at one side an unlimited amount of money, right? The amount of money that that Google possesses right now at this time uh, is almost unimaginable to any ancient person that they would possess such great wealth. This is greater than the wealth of Babylon. It might even in one sense be greater than the, the wealth of Solomon. And yet against this giant, their own failures, right? Failing to obey the standards of ethics outlined in the law of God are coming back to be their own destruction. Because what we see in the law of God is not just a list of do this and don't do this, or God will be very angry, but rather a connection between the real covenantal blessings of this life and our actions in this life. So while the giants might possess a little bit of power today, Their extension of that power depends on their faithful obedience to God over time. And our great advantage is when they're disobedient, God will, by natural, by legal, by ethical sanctions, take away whatever power the giants possess. And this goes back to the idea that once God takes the giants or creates a situation where the giants can be removed, it's very important that the people of God be ready to move in. 
and why David is such a good parallel to a lot of the people today, young people who were raised in the faith, who were taught that God's law is paramount, they're not as fearful as some of their older fellow believers who oftentimes work off old paradigms. If anything was true, when David shows up and says he's going to fight Goliath, everybody thinks he's a little loony, but King Saul says, well, why not? I mean, you know, we, we're not going to win, so why don't we try this? It, it can't hurt. And the first thing he tries to do is put his armor on David. Well, aside from the fact that it doesn't fit, that's not how David's going to conquer the giant. And I think it's important to realize as, as bad-mouthed as millennials can be, you know, be the recipients of, oh, they're just millennials. The fact is these young people have a vision and a fervor, those who are really eager to see the crown rights of Jesus Christ proclaimed and established, that it behooves lots of people to sit back and say, I'm not going to criticize them because they're not doing it my way. Because you can imagine that there was criticism with a slingshot and not only that he was gathering stones, it turns out David only needed one. And that's really important because what we see as the product of Goliath, I mean, we have to think about where does this idea of a giant even come from? And Earlier in the book of Genesis, we're told about giants through the, the Nephilim or the idea of the sons of man mixing with the, the angels. And I think in there, there's also a lesson. We have something to say about how our motives for uh, success, our motives for power, our motives for prosperity can get mixed in, but also we can see the compromise happening to lots of corporations and individuals as they begin to mix together, almost amalgamate uh, their futures with these false promises. Right? I'm sure the sons of men who married off into these strange relationships, they get bigger, right? They physically get stronger, taller, bigger. And there's the, the giants of the land who are the natural and biological product of that. And we can see that happening today. There is this short-sighted idea that if we just compromise a little bit, right? Uh, maybe our children go to a state school, uh, a public education, they get a degree for the sake of furthering their own financial independence and building a family and, and pursuing an American ideal. What we're really doing is compromising a little bit. We're amalgamating with the sons of this world and the sons of the angels, the idea is we could create little giants if little Johnny only became, you know, a, a lawyer or a doctor in a secular sense. But what we see over and over again is the compromises that the people of God make to become little giants are always short-lived. Those original giants are wiped out by Noah, and you see the giants like Goliath torn down by little boys. And Again, we see here in our day and age that these compromises we make to be a part of Google, uh, whether it's compromises by not saying anything against their gender policies or against their views on marriage or against their views on environmentalism, these little 
tiny compromises we made to get along in corporate culture so that we can collect our paycheck actually weaken who we are. They undermine our witness. They undermine our ability to cast a vision for the future because we then become part of this weak, stifled Goliath generation who will be taken down when the next set of Davids come along. And so you touched on something that I think is really key. When I was growing up, so I grew up in the 50s and 60s and early 70s is when I graduated high school. There was this slogan, to get a good job, get a good education, go to college. And people bought into that. And the idea was we'll do whatever it takes to make sure that our children get into a good college. And as most people who are watching will be aware that that's actually the environment where the enemies of God have established a stronghold. Um, they really do want the bright and capable young Christians to come to their schools because they plan to convert them. They plan to undermine them. And so uh, you have to wonder if part and parcel of this buying into, we have to be part of the mainstream, we have to have these credentials, is the very thing that brought about the disillusion of many Christian families. And that we need to relook at what do we consider valuable and how do you know someone is a success? Mm. Well, and I think we should hear what is said to Joshua at the very beginning when he is supposed to go in and face these, these giants of the land. The, the word given to him is to be strong and courageous. And I think courageous is a word missing from every guidance counselor's vocabulary. Nobody talks about being a courageous person of commerce. Instead, we're told and we tell our children to be safe to be reserved, to be conservative. It's not courageous to follow the normal four-year state university track. That's, that's safe. That's not courageous. Uh, in some senses, that could be cowardly because you know, if I go to the four-year route, I get my dental degree and become a dentist, I'm going to be set for my middle-class suburban life. My children can go to private school. Everything will be nice. Uh, and that works if you're in the land of Goshen. Uh, you don't have to <laughs> challenge Pharaoh. You don't have to walk out into the promised land. You don't have to be courageous. But if you are truly looking forward to the promises of God, if you believe that there is a land, a promise, a people, a purpose for God's kingdom on earth, you have to hear what was promised to Joshua. Be strong, which means that the weaknesses of this world, uh, the, the laziness, the cowardliness, the inability to take Christ's words seriously, be strong in mind and body, and then to be courageous, to be willing to go against the conventional wisdom that says, if you do it a different way, you won't be respectable. And so the call today for Christians is a call to courage, a call to welcome the mockery of the world when you're a young woman who says, I want to be a mother and raise a generation of children from Christ. That's courageous in a time that mocks even successful women with children. To be courageous is to embrace you as a young man, your role to stand for Christ in the public sphere, in your occupation, to say, maybe I don't need 
their government sanctioned accreditation for me to get a degree or for me to learn what I need to learn. How can we be more courageous? And in the place of courage is where we're going to find the tools that allow us to conquer the giants. Right. And not give into the enemies of God, stereotyping the people of God. Of course, when God's enemies want to ridicule and belittle his people, they're going to exaggerate, they're going to misrepresent. And that's what's been so funny to me in one sense about this whole Supreme Court nominee, an accomplished professor, an accomplished judge, an accomplished wife and mother, and apparently from those who know her, a very good person, the kind of person you would like to know. And there are people who are challenging her qualifications, and maybe I'm biased, Steve, but I think that probably what makes me feel she's probably most qualified (laughs) to be a Supreme Court justice is that she's been the mother of seven kids. And I think mothers have some of the most real world training in all sorts of things, negotiation, counseling, arbitration, economics. There's not hardly anything that a mother who's doing her job doesn't become proficient in as she makes mistakes and learns from them. So isn't it funny that the people who have been pushing the idea that people who are stuck at home, people who are just mothers and wives, that somehow or other it disqualifies them, I personally think it makes them super qualified. Certainly so. And I think that this idea of qualification, we often think that God's qualification is less powerful than the world's qualification. That if somehow God commissions you to a certain job, like a mother, which he does by giving you the gift of pregnancy, that somehow uh, you need the world's affirmation in what your role is. But God has spoken to you through biological and natural means, through the promises of his word, and already commissioned and equipped you in the purposes he called you to. And not just speaking in academics or in career, but there is a sense in which we have forgotten even our recent history when it comes down to what it means to be accredited. One of the great pieces of American history at our very founding is that our revolutionaries uh, were, of course, a minority. They were farmers and (laughs) commercemen who did not have the training or the equipment of a professional militia. In a very real sense, the idea of America's independence when we revolted (laughs) against the King George was a David and Goliath story the American framers, the the founders, the writers of our constitution did not even have the proper equipment as far as boots and coats and guns to provide for a army to fight against England. At the same time, England is just like the Philistine Goliath. They have the best armor, the best weapons, the best soldiers outnumber the American soldiers. Uh, But we know what happens. When God blesses something, when he gives the accreditation, when he looks down and sees that one side is fighting by his allegiance, with his blessing, then we see David prosper. But when you look closer at the story of the American Revolution, it's not, again, it's not magic where somehow the hand of God was 
causing the bullets of revolutionary soldiers to hit uh, captains and to overcome them by supernatural means. The people who were smaller had a tactical advantage. They could hide along the bushes. They didn't march in formation. They didn't follow the traditional rules of warfare. And those were their advantages because they refused to conform to the rules set up by the great British Empire, which was at this time considered the greatest military force, not just in Europe, but the world. Those tactics they chose as uh, the colonies did were their great advantage. And God gives them the blessing, just like David receives the blessing. How many examples are there today that we could embrace as little American revolutionaries overcoming the Googles, the Amazons, the, the Facebooks, and their false sense of giantness? Giantness, is that a word, giantness? <laughs> <laughs> well, I like what you said, because we have to pay attention to the advantages that God gives us. You know, years ago, I used to take martial arts and there was one of the instructors, a man who was, I would say, about two inches shorter than I was. And I'm pretty sure I outweighed him. But he ended up going into the special forces of the army. And I remember laughing, thinking like, I can't believe he got in. And my husband explained to me that his size and his strength made it so that he could get into places and he could get in and out of situations a lot easier than someone who was six feet tall and maybe weighed 200 pounds. And so I think it behooves us to figure out what advantages God has given us. I know today as a woman, I am not a feminist. I believe that God's order is the family and that the husband is the head and the wife is sort of like a prime minister with him. So I don't buck that, but I can't deny the fact that today in a culture that has promoted feminism for so long, that being a woman, I can use it to my advantage in furthering the kingdom of God. So don't you think, Steve, that people need to not bewail and bemoan what they're not, but look at what they are? Right. Well, and that recognizing that sometimes being smaller or being more agile or being the underdog is the advantage. One of my favorite business stories uh, is the story of, of Netflix versus Blockbuster. And of course, those of us uh, who grew up in the Blockbuster era recognize that that blue and yellow logo on nearly every street corner. And I grew up going down, taking my report card and get, trading good grades for a rental for a night. But now today there are no more blockbusters. And what happened? And there's a, a story behind this where Netflix, which originally uh, traded DVDs long before streaming, had this idea of doing mail order movies and they took it to Blockbuster and pitched it. Uh, but the giant that is Blockbuster was concerned about a very important part of their business. They said, if you allow people to reserve movies through the mail and return them whenever they want, then there'll be no more late fees. Now, this is, of course, years before streaming was a potential reality over the internet. But Blockbuster looked at the idea of Netflix eliminating late fees, and then they looked at their budget and they said, that will steal millions of dollars from our budget. 
We can't share our stockholders that we're going to lose millions of dollars by eliminating late fees and embracing this mail order version of movies. Um, so they passed on Netflix. Well, today, that small David of a company called uh, Netflix controls not only who watches what media, but also they control uh, the production of television and media, and they have their own movie studios. They pick the next actors and genres, even though they started as a, a small David with a small wedge idea. And it was the, the giant at that time, the conglomerate blockbuster, who waffled on the small idea of late fees that led to their ultimate downfall. It was the stone in their head, as you might say. But how many things are there that Christians discount because they don't want to change or rock how things are currently done? Uh, we can't change the way we preach from the pulpit because this is how it's done for so many decades. We can't change the way we run our families. We can't go against the idea of our traditions, even if they're man-made, because uh, this is how it's always been done. Yet, God is calling David's today to say, God's kingdom demands you to be courageous and to try and to experiment in ways that will topple the kingdoms of this world. Now, Netflix has been in the news lately for questionable things, questionable productions, etc. But I believe the point that you're making isn't now an endorsement of Netflix and everybody should go out and buy stock in Netflix, but to recognize that sometimes those who don't even purport to be Christian are smart. They see opportunities. They see advantage. And how many people, going back to the idea of I have to get my child into a good college, make the same bad calculation that I don't want to give up the late fees idea. I don't want to give up the credentialing. But isn't it interesting that with the advent of this COVID-19, that there are dentists whose offices are closed because they can't operate. There are people's businesses where they had certain things, certain credentials, but now they're not in a position to operate it. So the more important thing is that whatever you do, whether you eat, drink, go to work, get a degree, whatever it is, if it's not for the glory of God, eventually it's going to end up being worthless. That's right. And to recognize that the great giants that we see covering the land today are really uh, just a blip on the map. Today, when we talk about the great giants, it's very different than even 100 years ago. 100 years ago, we would not have even thought of talking about Blockbuster or Netflix or Amazon. Maybe we would have mentioned the Standard Oil Company, right? Uh, maybe JP Morgan, right? These companies, some of them are, are still around, but there is a great shaking up that happens every couple of generations. And so rather than looking up to giants and expecting that the, the great facades that are built up by the kingdoms of man are going to be this way because they've always been that way, we can see that right now at this point of history, we are at the advantage um, that those Christian reconstructionists who are diligent and faithful in their families are going to certainly outnumber the pagans who abort and limit the number of children they have. Just numerically and biologically, those who are faithful mothers and fathers will outnumber the pagans of this land. So while we worry about demographics for this decade, 
if we're just faithful in this one area where God promises blessings, 100 years from now, it will be this generation that overcomes Pharaoh, just like we saw in Goshen. The number of Hebrew slaves was so great that Pharaoh could no longer ignore. Well, how did they get great? By fruitful multiplication. But it's not just that type of thinking. That applies to every area of our life. If we're faithful in commerce, faithful in education, faithful in all that we do, God allows us to build up and to store up. Meanwhile, the pagans tear down and self-destruct. Not only did Netflix take over Blockbuster and become you know, this big conglomerate that it is today, but now they're suffering by embracing this secular worldview. Uh, they see huge stock changes and losses, CEOs get toppled, executives fired uh, over this whole cuties discussion. And so God will tear down the giants, but he's not going to tear down those who faithfully build the family, faithfully build the church, faithfully build the kingdom under his terms. Those things he will uphold, strengthen, and continue to build. And you said something that made me smile. You said a hundred years from now. Well, I think too few believers in our day even consider that a possibility. They've been so indoctrinated into it's all terrible, it's all bad, and then swoosh, out of the sky, God's going to save us from whatever perceived problem. Instead of saying, it doesn't all have to resolve in my lifetime, I am part of this great, great story, and as long as I'm faithful, I can trust that God will have replacements for me to take the place that I feel that I'm performing today. And that's something that the enemies of God do not have because who they follow doesn't care for them. Not like our father in heaven cares for us. That's right. And, you know, most of what we read in the Bible uh, is paralleled in our own lives. So we can look at the story of, of David and Goliath and find encouragement that even in the face of adversity, there is triumph for God's people as they look to his ordained means for conquering these things. Uh, God had prepared David for this battle. And the same thing is true for you. But what we need to be prepared for today, if things are as bad as people want to believe, right? So say, imagine at this time, history is for this decade, or maybe for this century getting worse. That for the last 2,000 years, we've been on the up and up, but now it is the decline of Western civilization, prepare for the next dark ages. If that was true, then that's been done in history before. Uh, the medieval period when the Muslims came and conquered most of Eastern Europe, there was a great oppression throughout Italy and Eastern Europe where the Moors conquered all the way up to the southern part of Spain. And the people who underwent that persecution under the Muslims faced slavery. They faced their children and uh, wives being murdered, raped, and killed. Uh, this is not something new to Christian experience. But even in those times of great calamity, there is, on the other side of it, still God's victory. We have to recognize that the defeat that we experience, whether it's in this life, maybe it's in your job this week, is only a temporary setback. God's kingdom can never be conquered. And so when we see failure, when we see disappointment, when we see the kingdom of God not reaching where we want it to be, 
we have to keep in perspective that this is a temporary setback and usually an adjustment to remind us that there is a tactic, there is a great sin, there is a cultural decay that we need to repair. And so when we look at United States and we can say there's a lot of things wrong, we've departed far from our Puritan foundations, there is on the other side of our failures, the great hope and promises of Christ's kingdom, just like Noah experienced. The promises made to Adam were true even unto Noah, who saw every person besides his wife and sons die. He saw every relationship destroyed. He saw every part of human culture destroyed. And yet on the other side of that great calamity, Noah is called to rebuild the entire world. And now the tens of billions of people who have lived since the time of Noah have lived in the blessings of Noah's obedience as he rebuilt and repopulated the earth. The same thing is true for you on the other side of 2020, on the other side of this generation, on the other side of America. And I'd say that if, you're, if those who are listening, if there's some of you who are feeling discouraged, if there's some that are feeling outnumbered, I hope you find and meet with other members of the body of Christ and you together worship God in prayer, in song. One of the biggest succumbing to evil is when Christians in the last eight months have decided that they shouldn't meet together because somebody who is not consulting scripture in terms of whether something is right or wrong has created a either a sense of fear or an actual prohibition. I can tell you that the reason we're supposed to go to the house of the Lord together, the reason that we're supposed to congregate and not refrain from doing so has everything to do with us having the perspective, the biblical perspective that says not only does our side win, but we're expected to take up the armor of God. And one of the casualties of that in this time since the lockdowns began are people relying on their sermons coming from the television or their smartphone or their text messages when we, are, we should be getting our instructions and encouragement are from meeting with the people of God, celebrating the fact that if God be for us, who can be against us? That's right. Well, this, just this morning, uh, we're doing our preparations here at Canterbury School for All Saints Day. And we're learning a special song called Song of the Saints of God that we're going to do in a parade as our alternative to Halloween. But I told our kindergartners the story of uh, St. Margaret of Scotland. And for those of you who are familiar with Rush Juni's ministry, recognize his emphasis on the family his emphasis on reconstruction beginning with individuals as they exist as a family, that the basic unit of change in culture and politics is the family. And at a time when Scotland was pagan, along came this queen from what was, or what would become Hungary, travels into Scotland, marries King Malcolm, who is not a Christian, has eight children with him, and converts the entire nation as the queen. Uh, there is a very powerful moment where not only is she seen as the benevolent queen who feeds the hungry and creates orphanages for the poor, 
but as a faithful domestic wife, somebody who raises her children, children, she wins the heart of the king. Malcolm sees her devotion to him and to the Lord, and Malcolm converts, giving us the first Christian king of Scotland, which would later be the foundations and cradle of the uh, Presbyterian uh, Reformation. But before John Knox, a millennia before John Knox ever preached a single sermon, we had this woman who traveled from the continent to this island at a time of Christian persecution, married to a pagan king, faithful and obedient to her husband, converts him and the entire nation. Her son, King David of Wales, becomes a great Christian ruler, spreading Christianity to the other parts of the English Isles. And the foundations of Christianity in the West can be traced back to one faithful woman and her marriage and her eight children. If we could recognize the power that we as individuals and families have, not through voting, not through yard signs, not through huge campaign donations, but by respecting how God has ordained you to prosper his kingdom through these natural and holy means. Great story because not well known about her, but how many people today would have taken the first thing that you said, she married a pagan king. Up, oh, let's disqualify her. Absolutely. That's not the way you're supposed to do it. Yet God is not hampered by outside opinion makers. He knew what plan he had for her. He knew that her husband would convert. He knew it's kind of like the idea of the wheat and the tares. Um, I have a belief that a lot of Christians just think it would be better if there were no tares. I don't like tares. I don't like being around tares. But Jesus told us there would be tares springing up with the wheat. But he told us, don't go start harvesting or, or removing things until the fullness of time when he's going to manifest that this woman's husband was going to convert. So instead of focusing on tares, for goodness sakes, be wheat. <laughs> very good. And it's very simple. And I think that's, that's the difficulty we have, is we think that uh, we require some grand 3D chess, 3, 3D chess orchestrated strategy for Christ's kingdom to come on earth. That if we only had the right political consultants, if we only had the wisdom of the world, if we only had the right business idea, that somehow then God might grant us the victory. But God's solution for how to be successful is very simple. So simple that a shepherd boy with a couple stones could figure out how to conquer the giants. And today it can be passed on through us, just like the simple hymn says, simple hymn says, trust and obey. Uh, God says those who trust and obey him experience not only his love, not only his salvation, but we experience his blessings in this life. Trust and obey. That's the means by which the Lord uses to prosper us. There's no other way to find and to conquer giants, but by faithful obedience to God and his law word. And, and just to add to that, David must have known something about the temple because he had one stone, he aimed, and he got where that stone needed to go to fell the giant. Well, every Goliath in our day has the vulnerable spots just like Goliath. And how do you know what that is? Well, you know God's law. 
you prepare yourself, you're educated to understand your times in relationship to God's law, and then it will become much more apparent where the weak spot is of the particular giant you're coming up against and being unafraid if you have been faithful. I heard a pastor say the other day, what do I have to be afraid of, of people who are trying to get me? Were they going to kill me and get me to see Jesus sooner? I'm not worried, right? And that's the kind of fearlessness we have to have, that if we're doing what we're called to do, then we need not worry about what happens to us. Right. That's a perspective. There's inside of David, this compulsion towards victory. He hears from his earliest day, the idea that the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. So when the serpent that is personified in Goliath shows up, he goes for the head. And that's where we should be today. We should be looking for every opportunity to crush the head of the serpent with the expectation that when we obey God, he's going to grant us the victory. There's no other way. Exactly. All right. Well, I hope, listeners, you've been encouraged. I'm always encouraged when we talk about it. Sometimes I'm even surprised with the things that come out of my own mouth. That I'm, My note to myself is, listen to what you just said, because it's true. But uh, we appreciate those who have been in touch with us and telling us that um, our podcasts are helping them and giving them a renewed perspective. If you'd like to contact us, do so via email at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com. And we look forward to our next meeting together. And thank you, Steve. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.